Greetings. We're glad y'all are here. I trust y'all enjoyed the Matthew 18 study last week. We appreciate it. The elders got to get away last week and go to a T4G conference in Louisville, and it was wonderful. And so uh, thank y'all for letting us do that, and thank you, Morris, for, for teaching. Um, one thing I'm very thankful for is there is no... There is no shortage of great teachers in this body, and it is humbling and encouraging, and I love it. And so, um, y'all were blessed by that last week. This week, we're in Lamentations. you got to say it like that so people don't leave. Lamentations. Yes, we're in Lamentations. Everyone's excited about that. We're going to talk about lamenting and sorrow and pain and grief and sadness and heartache and trials and um, what else? Uh, uh, what's the C word? It's uh, calamity. Um, all, all kinds of positive words tonight uh, to, to address our study. And so um, here, here's what I want to do before we start. Um, this is one of those studies where if you don't um, take notes normally, I want to urge you to take notes. Because this is addressing very real suffering. And um, I know some of you have been through very real suffering. Um, Some of you are in the middle of it now. Um, For some of you, suffering may seem like sort of distant. And um, so what I want you all to do is take notes tonight because the guarantee that each believer has is that there will be suffering. Um, Anyone who says that life with Christ is a, a life of Putting the suffering behind you and moving on is, is not telling you the truth. It's not the biblical truth. And so what I want us to very soberly consider tonight is we're going to be talking about what the Bible says about what do we do when suffering comes. And suffering can come for many different reasons. But the guarantee is that for the believer, for the one following Christ, um, it will happen. There is no suffer-proof option for Christianity. There is no heartache proof option for believers. And so um, tonight there may be some things where you hear it and you're like, oh, okay, that's good. And it may be things that you just kind of need to tuck away um, for when that happens. So I don't know a better way to start a lamentation study. It's sort of like, all right, y'all be encouraged. Your hardest days are before you. So um, that being said, let's pray and we'll get to the text. Lord, we come to you now. We thank you for this evening, this time where we can gather and hear from you, that we can open your word, that we can read ancient texts that are wonderfully true and amazingly inspired by you. I'm thankful also for the Holy Spirit who gives us understanding and who helps us to wrestle through things. Lord, I pray uh, that the Holy Spirit would speak to us clearly uh, tonight as we work through a very difficult book, a very sorrow-filled book. I also pray, Lord, uh, uh, that this week, is, as Easter Sunday is approaching, that, um, that we would look for opportunities to engage those who may be a little more open to the gospel just because it's Easter. Um, help us not to look down our noses at people um, if they have a tendency to come to church only on Christmas and Easter, um, but rather help us to have hearts that, that break for them, that they don't have the sweet salvific fellowship uh, that they could have. Help us to be eager to lean forward and look for opportunities and make the most of those opportunities with our coworkers and with our neighbors. It may seem silly that someone would be more inclined to go just because it's Easter, but that's our reality. And Lord, let us make the most of that reality. Help us to be aware of those around us for the rest of the week, eager to um, not just invite people here, but eager to share with them the best news that they could ever hear. Um, Help help us to to brim over with that um, desire to, to share the gospel. We love you, Lord. We thank you for Jesus. Without Jesus, we would have no reason to be here tonight. And so we're here with joy and with eager expectation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Chronicles 35, 25 states, 
Jeremiah composed laments for Josiah, and to this day, all the men and women singers commemorate Josiah in the laments. These became a tradition in Israel and are written in the laments. I start off with that verse from 2 Chronicles because most, not all, but most would attribute the authorship of Lamentations to Jeremiah. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. So in a sense, this is a continuation of our previous two studies in Jeremiah. So we're going to kind of piggyback on the last part of that Jeremiah and go right into Lamentations. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. And in our first week, we considered the priority, the promise, and the cause of God's judgment. We noticed in Jeremiah that there's 45 chapters of God clearly communicating how passionately angry he is with his people. In short, Israel has wickedly forsaken God, and they're surrounded by wicked nations who they don't want to be conquered by, so they cry out to God. But what we see is that judgment begins in the house of God. So rather than being so overwhelmed in the book of Jeremiah by the wickedness particularly of Babylon who wants to conquer and lay siege to, to Israel, we should be overwhelmed with Israel's sin and be warned and, and reminded that, how, that um, judgment begins in the household of God. So the only hope that anyone has is that God will love us effectually, changing our hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. Our hope for Israel at this point is they are so far from him. I don't know if y'all remember some of the adjectives and metaphors that were used to describe Israel. It was along the lines of, of, of uh, wild donkey whores. It's pretty brutal. Last time I used that phrase, I noticed someone's kid was in here, and I was like, I can't believe I just said that with the kid. But the Bible says that. I didn't say that. And so that's what they were attributed to. And it's so, so bad that it says you don't even have to chase after them. Um, that's, um, that's how eager they are to, to lend themselves to idolatry. And it was just a wicked, wicked state of idolatry and arrogance and pride and um, a real disregard for God and his holiness. So the, the hope for them was that, was that God would love them in a way that is effectual. And, and it reminds us that we should never hope for a love from God that doesn't affect us. Um, there's sort of a weird view uh, that some have that, yes, I have God's love, God loves me, but I don't want it to affect my life in any way because I want to live the way I want to live. And that's just not how it works. So last week, or the, the second study, we considered the herald of judgment. And I was going to see if y'all remember, it's been two weeks now, what were some of the details on the context and the delivery of the, the herald of judgment, the, the proclamation, the speaking of judgment as Jeremiah brought it to, well, everyone. You remember some of those details? Y'all haven't been reading Jeremiah for the last two weeks? Just in review. Yeah, why'd they think he was a traitor? Yeah, so they're surrounded by enemy nation and man who has word from God says, yeah, y'all should probably surrender. If you want to live, you need to, you need to surrender. And so they, they begin to be um, a little bit um, uh, concerned about what side uh, um, Jeremiah was on. Uh, wh why else did they accuse him of being a traitor? What else did he, what did he say to King Zedekiah? You remember the good news he brought to King Zedekiah? Yeah, you're going to die. You're, yeah, they're going to get you. And so um, those things uh, led to him being accused of being a traitor. And then after Babylon comes in, Nebuchadnezzar, a uh, very, very, very wicked dictator, um, shows favor <laughs> to, uh, to Jeremiah and says, uh, yeah, I'll take care of him, uh, uh, put him in this nice place, and do what he tells you. So it wasn't even just take care of him, it was... Listen to him. 
And so this is just looking all kinds of horrible. He, speaking on behalf of God, of the people on whom he is a part, speaks to them, has to tell them, you need to surrender, according to God. Zedekiah, they will, you will be delivered into their hands. And then after them calling him traitors, remember all the officials, all the priests, all the lawmakers came against him to kill him, is what it says. They weren't just upset. It wasn't just some... Like one village idiot who everyone could ignore saying, hey, he's a traitor. All the important people, the authorities, were saying, he's a traitor, we should kill him. And then when everything comes down and finally Babylon comes in, Nebuchadnezzar says, let's, uh, let's make sure to show, show old Jeremiah some favor. And so anyone who said he was a traitor, well, now they just got more, more fodder for the fire and they can, they can move on with that thinking because it looks really bad for him. A good reminder that just because you spoke on Jesus' behalf doesn't mean that everything will go perfect for you. And then what we saw toward the end of Jeremiah is this eastward judgment that began in about chapter 46 and moved on for another five or six chapters. This eastward judgment that finally lands on Babylon where Jeremiah comes in and he says, Look, 45 chapters have been dedicated to God's anger towards his people for living so counter to what he designed for them. But then he says, don't forget Babylon. That eastward judgment moves over and he looks and he says, Babylon, God will judge you. And essentially what he reveals in those prophecies is Babylon was nothing but a tool in the hand of God. There was nothing that they could do outside of God's will. God's plan was to discipline his people was to use Babylon to do it. And they, could, they had no room outside of that. And ultimately, their wickedness would also be judged. So my question is, was it pride or humility that allowed Jeremiah to tell the Babylonians that they too would perish in God's judgment? What do you think? Was it pride or humility? Most of y'all are thinking, why is he asking that question? It's obviously humility, right? Is that what y'all are thinking? I can read your faces. Yeah, was it pride or humility that caused them to, to tell the Babylonians that they too would perish in God's judgment? Humility is what caused them, but why would I ask that question? Um, there's sort of a, a pretty typical mode of operation around here where when people start talking about judgment, it, almost, it sounds very prideful. It can sound... You're going to be judged. You're going to go to hell. And it's this sort of finger shaking in your face, talking down, arrogant, rather than a pleading. And here, the only reason that he would go and tell that to the conquering nation would be that God told him to. And humbly, he listened to God and spoke on behalf of God as an ambassador. The same thing, the same call that's placed on our lives. When, when you point out to someone their sin, it is not likely that they will appreciate your humility in which you did that, no matter what your tone is. I just went to a conference on the pastor in the public square. I took a class on the pastor in the public square, and um, they were talking about issues regarding homosexuality and issues regarding abortion, and how more and more the Christian who's a part of the talk is already judgmental, and no one's scared of you. No one is intimidated by you. You are just seen as arrogant and wrong, in large part in the public square. If you speak against um, homosexuality, homosexual marriage, and really what the Bible says about that, as well as um, abortion even. And so um, what we see here is like Jeremiah, we need to be reminded that we've been given a message that's not our own. We didn't make the message, and we should not take liberties with our message, with God's message. I said our. That would go against my point I'm making. We didn't make it, and we shouldn't take liberties with it. Our call is not to adjust and adapt the message to the changing culture and circumstance. That is one of the ways that the church has screwed up over and over again. Let's change the message a little bit to adapt to the culture. Let's change the message a little bit to adapt to the culture. I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to offend anybody. The reality is the word will offend some, and if you speak it truthfully, you're going to at some point offend somebody. You don't have to be offensive in the way that you do it. In fact, I would encourage you to be as winsome as possible. But when someone who is steeped in their sin has you standing before them and saying, this says that that's sin, and my urge for you is to repent so that you'll be saved, you may very well be mocked and at some point killed. 
So we have to remember that this message is not our own. And we don't adapt it to the changing culture and circumstance to make it less offensive. Do you believe that Christ is the hope of the world or not? It's what it boils down to. Does the person you're engaging need Jesus or not? And are you willing to suffer to speak that truth or not? And our world is one that is becoming more and more difficult to answer that question truthfully. And it's a, bit of a, a little bit more of a painful process to consider the ramifications if we speak particular truth in particular places. Dever notes, in neither case, the judgment on Israel or the judgment on Babylon, because Jeremiah's talking about judgment a lot. He says, in neither case, the judgment on Israel or the judgment on Babylon, did Jeremiah assume any of this would be done by his might? That will temper the way that we communicate the gospel and urge people toward repentance. There was no point where Jeremiah communicated that he thought that would happen by his might or that the things would come to pass through any insight of his own. <laughs> He wasn't claiming he has the insight and he has the might to make these things happen. He was claiming that God alone will communicate what God wants to communicate and he will bring it to pass with his power. He simply said what God told him to say. This is our role as God exercises his judgment. God is still exercising judgment. We can't forget that. That is the thing that will have you rejected by the most people in your lifetime. The fact that God is exercising judgment and you're an ambassador who speaks on his behalf. So the encouragement is to speak his message boldly and clearly while keeping a close watch on your own life. Don't become inward focused and don't lose sight of what's going on in your own life, but speak it boldly and clearly while keeping a close watch. So at that point in Jeremiah's, we're moving into Lamentations. Who all has God brought to justice by the end? Let me ask it this way. Is there anybody who God hasn't brought to justice by the end of the book? No, he, he lands on, I mean, if you go back and read the, the, the subtitles, he brings, you know, that eastward movement, judgment on Moab, judgment on Ammon, judgment, already judgment on Israel, judgment on Damascus, Kedar, Hazor, Elam, and then finally Babylon, and the utter destruction of Babylon is prophesied in the end. So, Israel, Babylon, and pretty much everyone else, God has brought to justice. So if everyone receives justice, what then is the difference between God's people and other people? If everyone receives justice, what is the difference between God's people and other people? Then and now. His provision, particularly what? In the sacrifice? What? Grace. I'd say grace and mercy are the difference, and I want to make sure we see that there's a difference between those. Every time I talk about this, I... This was something that Steve Mayo, a, 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 a guy who was an elder here at Crosspoint for a while, would always explain. He said, grace is getting that which you don't deserve, and mercy is not getting what you do deserve. So if you've been captured by um, people who are going to ask for a ransom and they're holding a gun to your head, you're not asking for grace, you're asking for mercy. Because you're looking at them and saying, please don't give me what it is you think I deserve. So grace is being given what you, what you don't deserve, and mercy is not being given what you do deserve. And so the difference between everyone else who's being brought to justice and God's people is mercy, not getting what we deserve. If you read through Jeremiah, there are a few little points that are just, they kind of stick out because they're pretty bright. They're like these bright lights in this really dark story. There's one where he tells Jeremiah to go buy a piece of land. I mean, how bizarre is that? That God would say, hey, Babylon's coming. Tell everybody to surrender. Uh, tell King Zedekiah he's, he's done. But um, while you're doing that, if you have a minute, go buy that piece of land over there. No other reason for that other than to say, there must be something coming in the future that I don't know about. There's this little glimmer of hope in Jeremiah purchasing property on land that is guaranteed to destruction. The only hope would be that God would be renewing it in some manner. Then there's another guy in Jeremiah that said he was righteous and God took him home and he didn't reach judgment. So there's these two really small but really bright lights where we see that there is mercy, and that's how it is for us today. That the difference, judgment will begin in the household of God, but for those who are in Christ, you have a beautiful gift that others do not have that are not in Christ, and it is different. 
Dever notes, though God's methods are hard, his purposes are good. So I want you to look at Lamentations 3. There is hardly anything about Lamentations that's not really difficult. So in Lamentations 3, start in verse 16, it says, He has made my teeth grind on gravel. Consider Jeremiah saying this as he sees what's happening to his people. He's made my teeth grind on gravel, made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. When you hear one of God's prophets saying my hope from the Lord has perished, this is a very, very desperate time. Remember my affliction, my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it's laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. Let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. That is the high watermark, bright, shiny moment in Lamentations. It's very sober. So if we consider what is it from God that gives us hope in the midst of what seems hopeless, if you find yourself in the midst of suffering that seems hopeless, where you could just almost say with Jeremiah, my hope in God is just about gone. The two things we remember according to this are the steadfast love of God and compassion that is in accordance with God's steadfast love. So consider where Israel is, how hard it is, and know that God says, Here, here's what you hope in. This is the high point. This is, this is I want you to actually hope, but your hope is resting only in my steadfast love and the compassion that I have that is in accordance with my steadfast love, even in the darkest of dark moments. So in Lamentations, what we have is a poetic structure. And I started in chapter 3 because that's the apex. And, and a lot of what we're about to read in the next few minutes is very hard, very difficult. If you look at the chapters, they all have 22 verses. It's poetic. And this poetry is... In one, chapter 1, there's 22 verses. In chapter 2, there's 22 verses. In chapter 4, there's 22 verses. And in chapter 5, there's 22 verses. So you kind of think of it if it starts here. And then chapter 3 has 66 verses, three times as many as any of the other books because that is the poetic apex of the book. What I just read was essentially the poetic apex of the Lamentation of Jeremiah. And then the others are ordered accordingly. When you see that kind of structure in, in Scripture, um, Derek mentioned something on, uh, on Sunday about... Um, the psalm that he was sharing and, and about the, the Hebrew alphabet and just the order and the structure of it and what went into that. You can know that the writer is not just sitting and writing freestyle. They're, they're using a discipline to communicate something in a significant manner. So I want us to see that structure because it at least in part helps us to see the significant communication that, they're trying, that he's trying to, to bring in to, to bring this point, the points across that the Lord would have for him in his prophesying. We're starting here, we're going to end here, because the rest of the book is very, very difficult, because we're focusing on how to deal with suffering. Dever notes that, and you might consider if this is true for you, moments of suffering and loss often mark the great turning points in history generally, and in our lives particularly. Moments of suffering and loss often mark the great turning points in history generally, and our lives particularly. Consider the last time you were suffering. The last time something hard or difficult or, or you know, just sad happened or you were afflicted in some way, 
Um, what happened afterwards? What did God show you? Was there any change? Was there anything where you came out on the other side realizing God's better than I realized? God delivers us even through that. Maybe it's the death of a loved one. Maybe it's the loss of a job. Maybe it's financial woes. Maybe it's sickness. There's any number of things. And just that point that that's often the, great, the mark of great turning points in history, generally, in our lives particularly. Lamentations, like the book of Job, is literarily considered a theodicy, which just means that it helps people to see God's goodness and power amid suffering. This book helps us to see God's goodness and his power even in the midst of terrible suffering. So turn to Lamentations 1 and start in verse 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night. With tears on her cheeks among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They've become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn. For none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted. She herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. What is the cause her the female being referred to as Israel, what is the cause of her suffering as noted in verse 5? Many sins, many transgressions. Many sins and many transgressions are the cause of her suffering according to verse 5. As we keep reading, we see, From the daughter of Zion all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wondering all the precious things that were hers from days of old when her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her. Her, her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O oh Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things. For she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, to whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all who you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He's left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together, they were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord is trodden as in a winepress, the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears. For a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate. For the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there's none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. In these verses, we find that those who remained in Jerusalem, many had been taken out at this point, and this is referring to those who were still in Jerusalem. For those who remained in Jerusalem, they reveal to us our first response when suffering comes, and the encouragement that we're taking from the word tonight is that when suffering comes, confess your sins. When suffering comes, 
confess your sins. It may seem counterintuitive because your sins may be, your suffering may be at the hands of other people who are sinning against you. But I will tell you, I have never had anything in my life reveal my sin like being sinned against. So don't waste it. Make the most of that. Soberly confess your sins. You see that in here. You see this lament. You see this crying out. You see this desolation. You see this being just ripped to pieces emotionally and spiritually and even physically, but even sprinkled through that crying out, it's, this is because of my sin. Her transgressions are many. So when you're sinned against or when hardship comes, when suffering comes, confess your sins. And remember how we defined discipline a couple weeks ago that discipline's not just the consequences of your sins that you know, are earthly. and Discipline's not just God trying to veer you in the right direction. We can define discipline as anything that shines a bright light in a dark corner of your life. Suffering will do that in a unique way. Anything that shines a bright light in a dark corner of your life is the discipline of the Lord. To ever notes, remember, we will be humbled. And the only alternative, this is, this is difficult, the only alternative to being humbled by God's word is being humbled by God's wrath. The only alternative to being humbled by God's word is being humbled by God's wrath, whether in this life or in the next. And he says, friend, <laughs> how he always says this, friend, I urge you to be humbled by God's word be humbled by God's word. Let it do its work, as it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, breathed out by God for reproof and correction, that you may be trained and equipped in every good work. Look at Yeah. 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 I mean, it's the equivalent. You know, there's no point really in Israel's history, and it's a great point where, where oh, I didn't know. I mean, it's almost like they. They cross the Red Sea, and they see the, the waters part, and they cross, and they're provided for in the wilderness, and they go to Sinai, and it's quaking, and they know, they see the power of the Lord, and he comes down, and they made a golden calf. You know, it's the same stupid sin. Sin made, that's what the, I don't let my kids use the word stupid very much, but I tell them they can use it in reference to sin, because scripture says sin makes you stupid. That's a great example of what just happened there. Sometimes they'll just say, sin stupid, sin makes you stupid, and they'll run around and think, that's funny. Um, and I'm like, oh, okay, that's fine. We'll go with that. Um, but yeah, this is, um, they should have been humbled by God's word uh, rather than humbled by God's wrath. Um, in chapter 2, look at verse 1, it says, how the Lord is, um, how the Lord is in, in, how the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud, he has cast down from heaven to earth, the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob in his wrath. He has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Zion. Look at verse 3. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. Verse 4. He has bent down his bow like an enemy. And in verse 5, the Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He's swallowed up in all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. He has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. And then look at verse 17. It says, The Lord has done what he purposed. 
He has carried out his word which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Who seems to be in control of Israel's hardship here? The Lord. This may be difficult for some of us. We're like, whoa, hold on, Babylon was wicked. But he makes it clear through his prophet that he is the one who is doing this. It is his wrath being poured out as he sees fit on his people who spurned his word and mocked him and turned from him and followed after whatever their hearts desired and bowed down to idols. When suffering comes, recognize your divine judge. That's the second thing we learn here. When suffering comes, recognize your divine judge. Because if you don't recognize God's hand in your suffering, you will play the blame game. They did this to me. This guy at work did this. I end up losing my job. These financials, I didn't get paid enough there. That person hurt me here. That was unfair over here. These people wronged me. I have, I, pff, there's nothing in my control. And if you don't see God's hand in his divine, as the divine judge in your suffering, if you don't see him working something according to his perfect plan, you will just blame and blame and blame and blame and continue to push away discipline that he may be bringing in your life to make you more like him. This is hard because some of y'all are thinking about difficulties you've been through and you're thinking, I just, it's hard for me to see God having a hand in that. But you should be more encouraged that he would have a hand in it than it was something that was more powerful than he was. And these are things that are hard to cling to when you're in the middle of the suffering. That's why I'm asking you to write them down and look at them and pray through them now because some of this may very well be preparation for you. In the future, when suffering comes, recognize your divine judge. It's good for us to remember that even in the worst and seemingly most wicked circumstances, God's purposes resound. He's not dethroned at any point. Suffering may come because of horrible disobedience, as it has done for Israel here. They were wicked. They were nothing like what he told them to be like. But it may also come because of obedience. Suffering isn't just the product of disobedience. Sometimes, by God's perfectly wise design, suffering is the result of obedience, doing the right thing, saying what should have been said. It might be the result of Christ-likeness. If this is a struggle for you, and this has been a struggle for me, I've, there have been times where I look, I'm reading through these prophecies, and I'm considering life, and I'm considering the state of our world, and I'm thinking... I really am I really okay with suffering but for being Christ-like? Do I have a parking place for that thought? Am I okay with someone wronging me or even afflicting me because I did what Jesus told me to do? Does, does that seem horribly unfair to me? Do I, am I, do I think I'm entitled to something better? And they're questions we should ask. They're really hard questions. And if that's a struggle for you, what I would encourage you to do is spend some time studying the death of Christ. It'll humble us. If you spend time studying the death of Christ, you'll see one who was far more perfect than you, who was far more afflicted than you, resisted to the point of shedding his own blood. And he sets an example for us and maybe redefines for some of us what it means to take up our cross and, and follow him. Look at chapter 4. I'll warn you, these verses make my stomach turn. Chapter 4, how the gold has grown dim, the pure gold has changed, the holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. It's, there may be gems and stones and gold bricks, and they do not matter. They've lost their luster. The economy is gone. The civil government is gone. There is, n there is no order here. The precious sons of Zion... Worth their weight in fine gold, how they're regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hand. Even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel. Like the ostriches in the wilderness, the tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. 
For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral, and beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They're not recognized in the streets. Their skin is shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by the lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They become their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. Those were the compassionate mothers that had to do that. Not the wicked ones. Those were the compassionate ones. Verse 13, this was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. The irony. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. Those, the priests and the prophets, who were previously responsible for bringing the sacrifices and spilling the blood to atone for the sins of the people over and over again, those who had those responsibilities constantly sprinkling the blood were now covered in the blood of the righteous. And the people said, those who once were there to help Atone for our sins will make us unclean. The priests and the prophets will make us unclean, and they are reviled. When suffering comes, recognize the responsibility of your leadership, and if you are in a leadership position, you should quake with that verse. The leaders weren't condemned for being inexperienced or inefficient. The leaders here are condemned because their hearts turned bad and they led people in a bad way. The leaders here are condemned. The priests and the prophets are condemned because it was the blood of the righteous that was on their hands. The priests and the prophets are condemned because they were wicked and they turned from God and they led everybody else to become wicked and turn from God. So in times of suffering, consider the responsibility of your leadership. And finally in chapter 5 it says, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink, the wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We're weary. We're given no rest. We've given the hand to Egypt, to Assyria, to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more. We bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There's none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion. Young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate. The young men, their music... The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. If you are dabbling in sin, I can't imagine a verse being more powerful than that. Woe to us, we have sinned. For this is our heart. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. From Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But listen to this. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? And the last two verses are almost shocking. Restore to us. Restore, to your, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may 
be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. I mean, have you ever cried out to God in such an honest manner? When suffering comes, pray. It may seem obvious, but when suffering comes, pray specifically for restoration and renewal. Those who are in the, the darkest pit you can imagine prayed for restoration and renewal. So the obvious question here as we close, if God is punishing and disciplining Israel through Babylon's nightmarish and barbaric attacks, can Israel really expect God to hear their prayers for restoration and renewal? And that's where we'll end where we began in chapter 3. Look at 21. 321. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults for the Lord will not cast off forever. Do you see the difference when we read that now after seeing all the other things that have happened? But though he cause grief, though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And we, we can read that verse out of context. Compassion according to the steadfast love. You read it in context, it, it takes a whole other meaning. The compassion of the Lord, the steadfast love. The situation is still horrible. Dever notes that their peace and plenty has been replaced with war and want, and that is usually the lot of the country that is besieged by its enemies. Peace and plenty are replaced with war and want, and that is the reality even in this verse. And at the apex of the poem, God calls his people to hope. So when suffering comes, God calls you to hope. When suffering comes, God calls you to hope. This hope was based on the character of God, a defense of God's actions, and a call to confession and repentance. We must remember that it's God's perfect character that's behind everything that happens to you and me. He's not snoozing. When Jerusalem finally fell, 587 B.C. was the fall of Jerusalem, and it marked a really great turning point. What we're reading about here in the prophecies marks a significant turning point in our history, and our story is the story of a people. God's people began their transition from being a nation-state to being a people. God's people began their transition from being Israelites to being called Jews. And they learned that God was not limited to particular states of geography, time, plans, or even particular buildings built in a particular way. Things began to change at this point. It looks desperate. It looks horrible. But the changes that began then are a massive blessing for us today. And it's hard to see. It's, it's hard to make good sense of. It's hard to, to zero in on because the story is so big. But the changes that began there affect us today. So when suffering comes, hope in God. At the end of his study, Deborah says, at some point, if you haven't already, you will experience a trial that exceeds your ability to find an explanation. Remember we studied that in Ecclesiastes, that God gives his people work to be busy with. He puts eternity in their hearts so that they want to know the beginning from the end and everything in between, but then he reminds them one little detail, you are not God. He says, in fact, you thought you were like me, or you thought I was like you. So that's the difference. And here, we're reminded again, you will experience a trial at some point that exceeds your ability to find an explanation. That's that point where us control freaks say, okay, Philippines says, ask for peace that exceeds understanding, but the control freaks say, they're the same. <laughs> Give me understanding, and I will have peace. And we don't see a difference between them. But the difference is trusting in the God who is in control, knowing that you are not God, nor are you in control and he will give peace that exceeds understanding, but there will be a time where you will not have the ability to find an explanation no matter how hard you look for it. But if you know God for who he is and what he is like, then you will be able to trust his character and all of his promises, 
in Christ, even in the trials that you can't understand. When we suffer for God, we should realize that our only lasting hope is in his unchanging character and what he has done for us in Christ. The only hope for that circumstance is something outside of that circumstance. I, I was reading this last week, don't remember who it is, someone a lot smarter than me, and they said, that's why you, your feet shouldn't be planted in the circumstance. That's how you get through the circumstances, because your feet are planted elsewhere. And that's in the promises of Christ and what has been accomplished for us in Christ by a power far greater than and outside of our own. So this question that I want to just leave us with, y'all think about it, y'all consider it, y'all work through it, y'all pray through it as a family. What do you value more than God himself? Because what we see in the suffering is it all, it's all taken away. It all matters very little in light of eternity. What do you value more than God himself? I had to spend some time on my knees in prayer this morning because I realized with young kids, it's easy to get so focused on taking care of them and watching them and guarding them. And, you know, there's so many details. And I realized I think I had made a shift to maybe putting family and kiddos up here and maybe God next. And I had to repent of that. When I asked that question, what do you value more than God himself? It's like a, you, kind of, you can feel like you're in a snapshot and you want your family to stay the way that it is right now. You can't imagine your kids being any older or any younger. And you want, to be, you want them to be safe and you want things to go okay. And I, I realized, you know what? I need to be leading those kids to make sure they value God above family even. That this family finds its worth in our Lord. That their dad trusts God more than their dad trusts himself. That their dad loves God even more than mommy. So what do you value more than God himself? Let's pray. Lord, I'm thankful for lamentations um, and confess that's something I've never said before. Um, I'm thankful for our time tonight to go through the scriptures, to be sobered, to be humbled. Lord, I, I, I really pray that this is equipping us and preparing us. Lord, we're not sitting here begging for suffering. But oh, how thankful I am that there is not one piece of suffering that is outside of your power, control, and ultimately will be used for your glory and for the good of your people. You work all things for good according to the word, and that is a collective good of your glory and your people. We love you. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that you don't judge us according to our works. We're thankful that we don't have to earn our way into heaven. We're thankful that we consider the wrath of God that is towards unrighteousness because unrighteousness suppresses the truth, that it is Christ who was the wrath suppressor for us. I'm so thankful that as we study this and we see just how you can actually pour out your wrath on very real people in this world to know that we are secure in Christ. So no matter what pain or heartache or uncertainty comes, we are struck down but not destroyed. Nothing separates us from your love. I'm so humbled by that and so thankful for that. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.